With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast, a day later than normal because I have been on vacation. Sarah, my first vacation in five years. It's not what I call a vacation, hiking 14,000 feet. I call that punishment. 14,440 feet to be precise, Sarah. But you made it. You sent me a picture. I made it. I made it. I sent visual proof from the peak of Mount Elbert where uh, two of my friends and me, we went up all the way to the top. And um, I'll say this, this is, I was not expecting this. I am not as sore now at age 51 when I did it than I was when I did it the first time 28 years ago when I was 23. What explains that? Well, I think it's this, Sarah, that when I was 23, I did nothing to prepare for it. Right, right. Okay. You had some healthy fear this time. Yeah, I had a very healthy fear. So I worked out as much as I feasibly could. And I got up to the top of the of the mountain and I felt great. Like I felt like, wait, I mean, on top of the world, so to speak. Wow. And then the descent. <laughs> as someone who has had major knee surgery, the descent's always what gets me. Like even just going downstairs, holding the brisket, yeah. like, yeah, that's not good. Oh yeah. I, by the end of it, I, 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 so we have three, three of us went all the way up to the top. One of the guys is a three-time Ironman triathlete. And so he just went on ahead. He just went on ahead. He got up there and he came down and met us and then went up there with us again. Gross. So he, he, yeah, he did it twice. I hate him. Uh, but he did it twice. The other guy was a guy who hadn't worked out a ton and, and, but was sort of naturally physically fit. Uh, but he was struggling and we had a, we had a program and a plan and it was all we do is we take 50 steps and then we rest. We take, there's no, it's not, we don't think we're 1000 feet below the summit. We just think there's 50 steps and then rest. That is all of life is 50 steps. But then on the way down, all of life was just pain. (laughs) It was just pain. But, um, Sarah, there were a few adventures on the way. Uh, the RV we were driving in, uh, broke down. On the way. Of course it did. Yeah. Uh, coolant low. Uh, started to go up the high altitudes. It broke down. So that was one adventure. Another one is uh, we did a UTV or an all-terrain vehicle adventure thing where we were just flying around this like 100,000 acre wilderness area. It was so fun. And I may or may not have um, broken my ATV. Well, it didn't really break it. I may or may not have blown a tire on it. Through my Impressive. own quite possible negligence. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that that occurred. At least you didn't flip it. I was worried you were going to 
I mean, I had concerns about this whole trip. I feel like Nancy and I should have discussed. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I did almost flip it. Yeah. Almost at one point. Because um, a bunch of boys yeah. hanging out with their old college friends thinking that they're back in college is just not, no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, but it was great. It was a fantastic time, but I'm back. I'm back and I'm actually, my goodness. Um, it's I was September, there, by the way. Can you believe, like, ugh. I know it's September, weird days away from Labor Day. And after Labor Day, it gets real. Yep. Politically. I mean, as if it doesn't feel real now, it gets really real politically after Labor Day. Uh, and it got real legally in the last few days. Yeah, we had some, some man, some opinions coming out that like really are tying, they're not tying bows yet. Uh, they, they're ongoing, but like, I don't know, the first circle has been tied on some of the cases we've been talking about now for months. Flynn, McGahn, even the Trump finance cases. And we have a really interesting decision in Sarah Palin's defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. I mean, a lot of stuff. What should we start with? What do you want to start with, Sarah? Well, real quick on the Trump finance cases, basically the Second Circuit, not surprisingly, just said that they were going to hear arguments on this. So let's table that one until the arguments, which are the end of this month. And you and I will no doubt listen to those arguments and have feelings and thoughts. So table that one. Okay. And you know what? I haven't even mentioned. We have a guest. Oh, right. Yes, we have a guest. Uh, we have Kyle Mann coming from the Babylon Bee, um, the most fact check satirical news site <laughs> on the internet. So he's going to talk about the origin of the Babylon Bee, the origin of the feud that they have had with CNN and Snopes. Uh, and he's going to regale us with his favorite bee headlines ever. Um, which are also include some of my all-time favorites. So that is in the second half of the podcast. The first half is law. Second half is satire. Uh, so let's And launch. we'll see if you can tell the difference between the two. <laughs> Why don't we go to the never-ending saga of Michael Flynn? Thought you'd never ask. So last in our episodes, uh, the... Well, let's just do the real quick recap. So... Michael Flynn asked to have his case dismissed. Then all of a sudden, DOJ was like, yeah, yeah, let's dismiss it. And the judge was like, nah, I want to think <laughs> about that. And uh, appointed an amicus to make the argument of why he shouldn't dismiss the case. And he also asked for anyone else to send in their thoughts on why he shouldn't dismiss the case. So Michael Flynn then files a writ of mandamus, which is an extraordinary writ. That's not just my thoughts. That's like what it is. It's an extraordinary writ. And a panel of the D.C. Circuit was like, yes, writ granted. The judge must dismiss the case because DOJ and Flynn agree. And while, yes, there's a rule of federal civil procedure that says the judge or criminal procedure that says the judge has some role in it, it's really about abusing DOJ, abusing its process. Um, that's not an issue here. So you have to dismiss the case. The D.C. Circuit took the case on box so that all the judges could hear it. The oral argument was interesting and <laughs> you and I made predictions. The opinion came out and our predictions were bah, 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 totally correct. Yes, indeed. I'm, you know, I have to apply the podcast promotion exception to the moral dictate of humility. Mm. Um, that one of the things that we've been emphasizing from the start of this uh, latest round of the Flynn case is how unusual it was that this thing was tossed, uh, this case was tossed on mandamus. 
We have emphasized the writ of mandamus that this is an extraordinary thing. This is unusual. You just don't do that very much. And that is the core of the en banc opinion here. It's like, wait a minute. You're asking us to intervene before the trial court has even had a chance to hear the motion to dismiss the case. And honestly, Sarah, we've talked many times about how this case is just full of these holy crap moments. Like, holy crap. The DOJ is <laughs> uncorking a novel legal theory that it doesn't do in other cases to try to dis dismiss this case. Holy crap, the judge has decided he's not going to dismiss it and he's going to appoint an am am amicus. Wow, there's a mandamus. Mandamus was granted. It's just like escalating, amaz escalating unusual moments and all of a sudden we just had one that's totally normal. Yes, that's okay. So you and I haven't talked about this, but I was reading it and I was like, oh man, David, how are we going to talk about the fact that for the first time, I feel like we have a normal opinion in this case. <laughs> first yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. This was very normal. You do not intervene. It, it is not normal to intervene, uh, to try to get an appeals court to intervene to dictate that a trial court rule on a motion in a particular way. That is not normal. And especially as they point out that Michael Flynn isn't even in detention right now. He's not in jail right now. So it's not as if he's suffering real damage by going through the process. He can go through the process and, and it's entirely possible in the process that the court may go ahead and dismiss the case anyway. Well, and in fact, that was another part that I found very normal is when a circuit says like, oh, we absolutely defer to the district judge. We have to let this play out. Uh, P.S. District judge, you'd better find this way. Like we're, we're not embarrassing you, but like hint, hint, you know, this has to come out a certain way. And I thought that Judge Griffith's concurring opinion was just, I mean, talk about it. It could be satire, but it's not. Um, it was lovely. So it starts with, in cases that attract public attention, it is common for pundits and politicians to frame their commentary in a way that reduces the judicial process to little more than a skirmish in a partisan battle. The party affiliation of the president who appoints a judge becomes an explanation for the judge's real reason for the disposition, and the legal reasoning employed is seen as a cover for the exercise of raw political power. No doubt there will be some who will describe the court's decision today in such terms, but they would be mistaken. And he has one paragraph talking about it. And here's the last paragraph. Moreover, as its counsel repeatedly stated at oral argument, the district court may well grant the government's motion to dismiss the case against General Flynn. In fact, it would be highly unusual if it did not, <laughs> given the executive's <laughs> constitutional prerogative to direct and control prosecutions and the district court's limited discretion under Rule 48A, especially when the defendant supports the government's motion. But... If the court denies the motion, General Flynn has multiple avenues of relief that he can pursue. And because he does, mandamus is not appropriate in this case at this time. Subtle. Subtle, Judge Griffith. Very subtle. Not sure that Judge Sullivan is going to care particularly what <laughs> Judge Griffith thinks. Uh, this is a, you know, we may rapidly go back to the incredibly unusual chain of events that has dominated this case from sort of the get-go. But for right now, this was... Hey y'all, a return a return to normalcy legally. Even though the headline would sort of frame it as a rebuke to Flynn, it's much more of just a hey guys, let's pause on all the craziness. We're going to go back to business as usual procedurally and we'll just see what happens in the outcome. 
there was a dissent on, well, there were two dissents, one on the mandamus issue, um, which is uh, even too nerdy for this podcast. But there was one on when a judge has lost the appearance of impartiality, or rather their impartiality could be, quote, reasonably questioned. Um, I found that pretty interesting because I think that that's something we don't talk a lot about in any legal settings. Uh, Because, for instance, the judge in this case gave some very, um, uh, what's the word, blunt assessments of the case during what was going to be the sentencing. Uh, He said that these actions disgusted him, that they amounted to treason, things like that. But we expect judges to do that at sentencing hearings. And I thought it was interesting that in those, he was phrasing it about the actions, not the person. You know, the actions that you took are bad, Mm -hmm. not you, a person is bad. Um, But then it just, to me, it comes down to whether you think that it has to be really extraordinary for a judge to be seen as not impartial, or if you think that should just happen more often. It's sort of like how I think more lawyers should be disbarred. But we kind of have a policy against disbarment as a country, more or less. And so it's not that I'm saying in any specific case, I just think generally we should disbar more people. And so I feel like with this, it came down to, you know, do you think that judges in general should be more quick to recuse themselves, even though they are the fact expert in the case by that point? Um, Does it hurt our system of justice when people feel like the judge doesn't like them? Yeah. And I don't have strong feelings about it. In this case, it's definitely one that I think is closer to the line. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I found the majority's discussion, really brief discussion, actually, of this recusal issue as as pretty interesting because they're they're really making a point that, wait, what he said was in the context of the proceeding itself and the context of a guilty plea. Yes. And if you know anything about sentencing, for example, uh, post-conviction sentencing or post-guilty plea sentencing, it is not unusual for a judge to unload on the defendant. That's right. It is not unusual at all. And in fact, that's often praised. You know, they're, they're in state courts, which have, um, which have TV cameras. Sometimes these things will go viral, you know, as a, as a judge lectures a defendant. And it's kind of seen as okay and has traditionally been seen as okay because it's all post-conviction. Right. This is where the system has adjudicated the guilt. And then the judge sort of like takes it on his own prerogative to sort of vent his or her spleen about what the what the person has either been admitted to have done or was found found to have done or uh, by by a jury and that's just normal stuff um it would be really interesting if if he had been forced to recuse on the basis of this because it would have ripple effects you'd have a lot of sort of um you kids get off my lawn district court judges going oh okay yeah, I mean Lecture the part that's 7D. odd. Yeah. The, the part that's odd here is normally these cases um, have a lifespan, and you know what comes next in the lifespan. And therefore, after you have, for instance, pled guilty, and then there's a sentencing, that's the end of the lifespan. What's odd here is the judge said the things at the sentencing, but then the case goes back kind of to the very beginning, as he wants to undo his plea, and then. DOJ wants to drop the case. So now all of a sudden you're back to the very beginning of the case. And it would be odd for a judge at the beginning of the case to say that he thinks you probably committed treason. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, and that's exactly right. This is highlighting the unusual aspect of it because it's not just undoing a plea, it's undoing a double plea. Yeah. It's a double plea. He said, yeah, I did it before. New judge comes in. New judge says, hey, before, you know, you filed a sentencing memo that really raises questions about the plea itself. Are you sure you want to plead guilty? And, and Flynn goes, I am sure I want to plead guilty. I'm going to reaffirm it. So you've had this double plea, which the judge then unloads on Flynn. And then Flynn comes back for the third time and says, nope, 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 no plea, no plea. And then, which is the only thing that would remotely cast into question the judge's comment. So that was sort of an artifact of the strangeness of this case. Speaking of strange, McGann. One other thing. Oh, Your okay. prediction. Oh, no. What did Judge Sullivan do? So I think that's a really interesting question because it is abundantly clear that even in the majority, uh, Flynn's case is getting dismissed. Whether they have to do it or whether Sullivan does it, it's getting dismissed. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on whether Sullivan wants to, like, is he willing in order to make this painful for Flynn to make it painful for himself also? Uh, I think he dismisses the case, David. I think he absolutely wears out the DOJ and Flynn and dismisses the case. Yeah. That he... He may even write an, he may write an opinion that just sort of lays out all of the strangeness here, but then dismisses the case because of the deference due the DOJ and its prosecution decisions. But that that's been sort of my prediction from the beginning is that he's just going to wear them out, but dismiss the case. But we'll see. Now this one, this one, Sarah, the McGann case. Let's stay in the DC circuit, shall we? <laughs> Lots of action. Lots of action. Do you want to summarize this sucker? Okay. Well, first of all, we're we're back with Judge Griffith. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of fun. Uh, so this is whether the House can force McGann to testify. McGann initially said that he didn't have to even show up. He has blanket immunity as the former White House counsel, which was a weird argument. Yeah. And... Nobody really bought that. And indeed, the court did not. That was the end of that. There's no blanket immunity. And then it was just, okay, so you have to show up. But now there's the question of, does the House of Representatives have the ability to enforce its subpoena? And this was a bit of a surprise. Judge Griffith saying, uh, no, they can't enforce their subpoena under Article 1 because there is no law that Congress has passed that Congress can enforce its own subpoena. Now, I did feel like I, uh, I mean, it's a, (laughs) I have friends, we have, weirdly, I have these debates sometimes, David, over whether Congress actually has subpoena power or not. Yeah. This is like dinner conversation around my house. And, um, you know, the Griffith opinion turned around two statutes, 2 U.S.C. 288D and 28 U.S.C. 1365B, both of which authorize the Senate to enforce their subpoenas with a noted exception for subpoenas over uh, potentially executive privileged documents or testimony. And so Judge Griffith said, like, look, there's this, you know, exclusion principle in law where if there's a law that says one thing and it 
is very specific and it doesn't include all these other things that we're going to assume that was intentional. And in this case, the two things are pretty relevant. It says the Senate. They could have said Congress. They didn't. They could have included the House. They didn't. And so if they didn't include the House, we will read into it that therefore it was very specific that only the Senate can enforce its subpoenas. And two, that by specifically excluding within the Senate authorization, uh, these potentially governmental privilege documents or testimony, that even if for some reason you think it should include the House, that that exclusion could potentially apply there too. Um, So no sort of blanket constitutional implied subpoena power. Whoa, that would be, that's a real shock, I think, to the system. Yeah. You know, it's funny. um, It was almost as if when I saw it, I was like, wait, wait, what? The House doesn't have subpoena power? (laughs) Excuse me? And then I read the opinion and it was sort of, um, it was almost like a law school dorm conversation come to life. (laughs) That's, I can't, yes, a hundred percent because I've had this conversation and it is like a law school dorm conversation in my house. And then I saw it in paper and I was like, oh yeah, no, that's what that looks like. So it's sort of like somebody who hasn't, they haven't, you know, let's just say that they they haven't um, really engaged with longstanding practice of the House, you know, House committees issuing subpoenas and, and they haven't really thought very much about it. And then somebody says, here are these two statutes. Right. <laughs> Can the House issue a subpoena? And you read them and you go, well, it doesn't say so. <laughs> and then they go, well, wait a minute. Okay, what about Article 1? And you pick up Article 1 and you read it and you go, well, it doesn't say so. Um, but they could probably pass a law if they wanted to. And you think, oh, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Could this actually be right? And, and some of the commentary talks about the consequences of this, you know, that there are real consequences of this. You know, the, the House has sort of had this stick in its back pocket for a while where it says, we're going to make you show up. And, and uh, we'll, what about government oversight? What about legislative oversight and accountability if they can't really make you show up in the same way that you thought they could? And that's when you sort of say, okay, that's probably right as a matter of policy. You know, it's a matter of public policy. You'd want the House to be able to compel people, but where do you get that authority? I don't know. I found the decision oddly compelling, I have to, I have to admit. I don't know. Well, how about this? I didn't even read it in the context of whether I found it compelling because this is also going to go on bonk. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so I, absolutely. I was like, oh, I, I wonder how quickly it will go on bonk and when it will go on bonk rather than like, was I personally persuaded? Because I guess I, I also wanted to, at that point, go back and reread the briefing materials because it felt a little narrow, um, the Griffith opinion, to, to just focus in on those two statutory points. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very narrow, but it's one of those opinions. So I have to think more about it. Like I, I, as I said, everybody, I've been driving or riding for 23 hours and I only, you know, I actually tried to take a real vacation where I'm mostly unplugged. And so I've only, you know, my, my altitude addled mind read the just judge Griffith opinion and thought, huh. Right. But like there's Supreme court precedent on congressional subpoenas and there's never there's always been an assumption that of course congress and the house in particular can subpoena things so 
if you want to have this like ex exclusio principle, it's like, well, then the Supreme Court certainly has implied an Article One constitutional yeah. power to su- get information through judicial enforcement of a subpoena. Yeah, it's 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 almost like it's been it's all it's been so obvious no one questioned it. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the dissent talks about the Declaratory Judgment Act, which that I did find not persuasive. Mm-hmm. Like at the point that there is a very specific statute that talks about Senate subpoenas excluding governmental privilege stuff. I don't think that the Declaratory Judgment Act somehow sits above that and just squashes it. Um, so I think either you go with the exclusion through the Senate statutes and that that wins or there's an implied subpoena power in Article one. One or the two. And it's, so it's like huge stomping foot of the Constitution or who even knew we had these statutes about Senate subpoenas. But like the Declaratory Judgment Act, that I thought just sort of, eh, I found that really not persuasive. So that's my that's my on bonk prediction that it goes either the small way or the big foot way. Yeah. Yeah. This this feels like, you know, um, a kind of legal issue that doesn't exactly make headlines. Well, very briefly, very briefly, and doesn't exactly like uh, uh, get the people going, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) But it's pretty darn important. And if I was a Speaker of the House, I would think, you know what? One of my priorities is just sort of as a housekeeping measure. Yeah. (laughs) uh, We're going to try to ram through a bill uh, giving us this sort of at least as much prerogative as the Senate. And see where it goes. Um, Interestingly, that should be a pretty bipartisan bill coming out of the House. It, I don't know what would exactly what would happen to it in the Senate, uh, but I know one part of the government that will probably veto that. Oh yes. <laughs> so, oh. Uh, like, yes. Normally, I would say like this will get mooted out because the House will pass a law that would take care of this. Except it it won't happen in time, and uh, it they would have to have a veto proof majority. And again, while I think the House would actually have one, I'm, I don't think the Senate has a veto-proof majority on letting the House have more power because they don't really care. Uh, so I think you'd have some Republican senators just siding with Trump over that. So I do think that this will just continue the McGahn saga. And it'll be interesting to see what happens to so many of these cases if Trump were to lose and how many of them just get dropped. Or if the House pushes it and wants to sort of make some law on this, there's there's always risk in doing that, David. You could make... Yep bad, bad house law, like right now, where all of a sudden the House of Representatives doesn't have subpoena power. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a big case. It's a big case, but you're right. It's on bonk. It's going to go on bonk. So what this sort of did was just like, it's like pinging on our radar screen now. We're, We're like two sailors in the, you know, the command center of a ship, and we have now seen a hostile... Uh, you know, a, a bogey has pinged onto the radar screen. So we've got something else to follow. We never lack for things to follow, but we have another case to follow. Yeah, and speaking of things, by the way, that I thought were off of our radar pinging, the Sarah Palin New York Times case. Yes, now this is interesting. Um, okay, over um, the weekend... Uh, United States District Judge rejected the New York Times motion for summary judgment to try to to toss Sarah Palin's case against the New York Times, her defamation case against the New York Times. And you think Sarah Palin has sued the New York Times for defamation? Why, indeed, she did. But before I go on, Sarah, I need to disclose 
uh, conflicts, you know, disclose relationships. Nancy has worked with Sarah uh, several years ago on not one, but two books. So Nancy and Sarah have a really good relationship. And I have represented, and I think I talked about this um, in a previous case, our previous podcast, Bristol Palin, in a uh, defamation lawsuit. So um, putting that out there, that's the you know, that's part of you know my the French family squish rhino history is our uh, work uh, for Sarah and Bristol Palin. But anyway, okay. So here's what happened. If you guys um, want to to get a, a quick reminder um, after the James Hodgkinson shooting, uh, and if you don't remember who James Hodgkinson is, he was the vocal Bernie supporter who opened fire on Republicans who were practicing for the congressional baseball game. Very, very, very severely injuring Steve Scalise. And so after that happened, uh, New York Times published an editorial uh, in response to the attack. It very appropriately condemned Hodgkinson, um, you know, said all the right things. But then it said uh, this. Was this attack evidence of how vicious American politics has become? Probably. In 2011, when Jared Lee Lochner opened fire in a supermarket lot, parking lot, grievously wounding Representative Gabby Giffords and killing six people, including a nine-year-old girl, the link to political incitement was clear. Before the shooting, Sarah Palin's political action committee circulated a map of targeted electoral districts that puts Ms. Giffords and 19 other Democrats under stylized crosshairs. Conservatives and right-wing media were quick on Wednesday to demand forceful condemnation of hate speech and crimes by anti-Trump liberals. They're right. Though there's no sign of incitement as direct as in the Giffords attack, liberals, of course, should hold themselves to the same, same standard of decency that they ask of the right. There was the problem there, uh, Sarah, was there was no evidence of that Sarah Palin incited Lochner in any way, shape, or form. And how would the New York Times know that? From the New York Times. They had done a really comprehensive reported piece just days after the shooting. They described Lochner's mental illness, his political beliefs in very great detail. And they had nothing to do, nothing to do um, with Sarah Palin in any way, shape, or form. I mean, for example, this is one of his quotes from his um, you know, online screeds. Um, most people who read this text forget it in two, the next two seconds. The population of dreamers in the United States is less than 5%. If 9871234789618786 is the year in BCE, then the previous year is 98. This is the kind of stuff that he was that he was thinking about. And it had nothing to do with Sarah Palin at all. And after an outcry, uh, the Times did make some revisions, but Sarah filed suit, and now she gets to go to uh, trial. Now, she tried to change the legal standard to make it easier for a public figure to prove defamation. Um, under the law now, it's very hard. You have to prove actual malice, but that doesn't mean like spite or, you know, it doesn't mean evil intention. It means, did you publish something that was wrong or you should have known was wrong? And and it's a hard, it's a, it's a hard uh, threshold to clear. Although um, what's interesting about this case is it's usually impossible to clear. 
Yes. Because the New York Times had published so much specifically on that shooting when it occurred and any ties to the Sarah Palin crosshairs image, there is actual evidence that they did know, but she still has to prove that this specific person knew. Um, but, But she's better off than the vast, vast majority of these situations, which makes it an interesting case. Yeah, in which makes provides the New York Times with a lot of incentive to settle <laughs> the case because now you're going to trial and there's some pretty compelling evidence that uh, that would, and again, when we talk about actual malice, we're not talking about evil intent. Uh, it's Just it's knowledge, one of those, basically. Yeah, there's a great explainer of this, a law explainer by Ken White um, in his new substack. So which Ken, Ken's a friend from law school, super sharp attorney, former U.S. attorney. Now he's a uh, federal criminal defense attorney, First Amendment attorney. And so Mostly he's got a, a Twitter substack. attorney. Love the Twitter. <laughs> Twitter attorney. Yeah, absolutely. So he's got a great explainer about it. And, and he, you know, he's really good at noting how some legal words in law don't mean what they mean in life. <laughs> and so malice doesn't mean in law doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that malice believes in life. So she has a, she's going to be able to make a case to a jury. And in that circumstance, an awful lot, if not most defendants, when they're staring in the face, you know, misconduct severe enough that they actually kind of had to correct the record publicly, don't like to run that risk. I mean, the New York Times may, you know, they may decide that they, they're going to, that they believe they can win, uh, but it would getting not in front of a jury, me. Getting in front of a jury means the likelihood of Sarah Palin winning this case has gone up to, in my book, roughly 70%, maybe higher. I, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Because a jury is going like, someone said this false thing about you. Yes, technically the law is supposed to turn on whether they knew it was false, but they're going to admit that it was false and that they had mm-hmm. to correct it. And so I just think at that point, the jury is already kind of with you. And the yeah. New York Times will, I mean, I'm not saying a legal burden, but they will have a jury burden, if you will, to show that, like, they didn't know that it was false. And it's that's the important thing is that they didn't know it was false. They just accidentally said something, you know, blamed someone for murder um, yeah. that wasn't right. And, you know, most juries are like, yeah, I don't, I mean, you had reasons to know it would false, whether you knew or whatever, like, eh. Um, now, whether you'd put Sarah Palin on the stand with that jury will probably depend on who you get on that jury. Yeah. But you know, it's not a criminal case. So the defendants will be able to put her up there. Oh, good point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So she's in fact, at one of my last trial, uh, one of the witnesses I called first was the chief, the defendant's chief witness. Cause I, I wanted to, I wanted to get some stuff in the record coming from me first. Um, but yeah. So I think Sarah a, you know, Palin the, can make herself a less sympathetic plaintiff if potentially on the stand. You know, one of the things about witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about witnesses. <laughs> Let me tell you about witnesses. It, it reminds me of uh, my mentor in the practice of law, incredible lawyer uh, in, at, um, in Kentucky, Uh, taught me 90% of what I ever knew about litigation. So if, uh, so blame him, but uh, (laughs) one of his, I'll never forget a moment where we go into his office and we just won a case and we'd won on summary judgment even, Sarah. It was great. 
And so we called the client to break the good news. And the client chewed him out because the judge didn't give him all of the relief that he asked for. And, and I was gobsmacked. I mean, this young attorney, how come a client isn't just over the moon at winning a case? And uh, Phil, that's his name, Phil, Phil Scott, looked at me and he goes, David, the practice of law would be marvelous if it weren't for clients. which sometimes clients have unrealistic expectations. And I would say, I'll add the addendum to this, but being a trial lawyer is a marvelous, marvelous experience. If it weren't for your own witnesses that you often don't know what they're going to do until they're on the stand and the chips are down. So that'll be an interesting trial. It's set for 2021 and uh, we'll be watching. We will watch. So we have three things to watch more. Well, we were already watching Flynn. We now have the, the, the was, was the House of Representatives just cut off at the knees? And we'll hear that from on Bank. And will Sarah Palin defeat the New York Times? And, and one thing the, I'd add. And the New York Manhattan DA's uh, subpoena of Trump's tax returns. So much. So, so much? much, Sarah. And I'll say one other thing about uh, Sarah Palin's case. I think you have a harder time asserting sort of like innocent mistake if you're the New York Times. Right, not, a, not exactly a fly-by-night publication that's understaffed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But we'll see. So without, let's, let's move from the world of law, shall we? To the world of satire, including satire directed at um, not just Biden and Trump, but little-known Christian subgroups. The Calvinists. Um, the ca- well, wait a minute. We're not little-known. We're dominant colossuses astride the land. But So without further ado, let's talk to Kyle Mann from the Babylon Bee. But before we go to Kyle, let's thank our first sponsor, Bills.com. Being in debt sucks. Credit cards, student loans, mortgages, doesn't matter what kind. Being in debt flat out sucks. Well, there is a good way to defeat your debt, thanks to Bills.com. If you're losing sleep over maxed out credit cards or stressed out thinking about your mortgage payments or student loans, Bills.com can help you take back control of your life. The first step to lowering your monthly payments and becoming debt-free is to get a free debt assessment. It only takes a few minutes and could save you hundreds or even thousands of dollars each month. From debt settlement to personal loan consolidation to student loan or mortgage refinancing, Bills.com has you covered. They're part of the Freedom Financial Network, which has been in business since 2002 and settled over $10 billion in debt. Take the first step to defeating your debt. Get your free debt assessment today. Go to Bills.com slash opinions. That's Bills.com slash opinions. Bills.com slash opinions. And joining us, Kyle Mann, the editor-in-chief of the Babylon Bee. First, for those of you not familiar with the Babylon Bee, although I feel like most of our listeners will be, David, but I'm going to read what is the Babylon Bee from the Babylon Bee, because if you check in with Snopes or maybe some other websites, you may get a different version. So according to the Babylon Bee, the Babylon Bee is the world's best satire site, totally (laughs) inerrant in all its truth claims. We write satire about Christian stuff, political stuff, and everyday life. The Babylon Bee was created ex nihilo on the eighth day of the creation week, exactly 6,000 years ago. 
They have been the premier news source through every major world event from the Tower of Babel and the Exodus to the Reformation and the War of 1812. We just focus on facts, leaving spin and bias to other news sites like CNN and Fox News. If you would like to complain about something on our site, take it up with God. Kyle is the editor-in-chief. He was created in an orc spawning pit beneath the Tower of Orthanc. David, what is... Orthanc. We'll get to that later. Near the end of the Third (sighs) Age. Saruman, the many-colored, drew upon all his dark powers. Saruman. Okay. To imbue Kyle with the ability to write satire of semi-acceptable quality from time to time and also pillage many small villages in Gondor. I got Gondor right. Correct. Yes, you did. Kyle oversees and approves all content posted to the site and writes a good bit himself. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for reading my uh, bio. It's 100% accurate and fact-checked by Snopes. So, you know, it's uh, it's the most accurate possible. Well, I have a bone to pick already. Okay, because I don't think those were orcs spawned in the pits below Orthanc. They um, were Urukai. Yeah, Urukai. I mean, it's a kind of orc, right? Well, it's a so hybrid we can, orc. Yeah. I mean, and let's uh, we can check we can check Snopes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, they're considered orcs according to the Lord of the Rings fandom wiki. Oh, hmm. David. Wow, fact checked in real time. Oh, so Ooh. we're we're trusting wikis now? Is that what we're <laughs> doing? <laughs> yeah. So, Kyle, I want to hear a little bit about how Babylon B takes off because for so many years, and especially during the sort of era of the Daily Show being at sort of its max in the aughts, let's call it, um, there was this sense that it wasn't that uh, there wasn't a conservative Daily Show or a conservative Onion. It was that you couldn't have one because there wasn't anything funny from about liberals or the conservative side. And that's why we never saw conservative uh, funny television shows or conservative satire sites. And then along comes the Babylon Bee and y'all have just taken off since you started in what, 2016? Yeah, March, 2016. How does it come about? Yeah, it, it, we launched in uh, it, right during the 2016 election when that was kind of taken off. And so I think it, uh, it really resonated. You know, a lot of, we were critical of Trump. We were critical of the left. And so it was kind of a unique voice in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Christians were trying to kind of figure out how to feel about um, about Trump and about the election. And a lot of us felt politically homeless, you know, so to have this thing that kind of made fun of everything, it didn't really take a political stance but so much, but kind of deconstructed a lot of the assumptions on both sides, I think was pretty unique. And you're right. I mean, the conservatives have traditionally been uh, pretty bad at comedy. And uh, it, t- typically it's because it's because conservatives take themselves very seriously. I mean, you know, which is fine because they believe they believe in things, they believe in certain values. And so, you know, they, they have a hard time uh, making humor without having it like make this very on the nose, blunt point, you know, or just kind of being really mean towards the left or something. So we were trying to do something that was a little more like, I don't know. First and foremost, it has to be funny. And that was kind of what we were going for. I mean, normally when I'm falling asleep, like this is, I follow you guys on Instagram and I will, you know, see a couple and inevitably one of them, I like bother my husband. I'm like, ah, you have to read this one. But (laughs) this week it is nation's cats endorse Trump in hopes Americans will go back to work and leave them alone. (laughs) (laughs) That one hits close to home, Sarah. That hits close to home. Yeah, it did for me. Yeah, you know, what I find interesting is you guys, you have the political side, but 
you also have a lot of insidery evangelical humor. And yeah. I have to ask the question, Kyle, what did Joel Osteen ever do to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd think he kicked my dog or something, right? Right. <laughs> Yeah, we 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 made fun of Joel Osteen right from the beginning. Just uh, any anybody who's like prosperity gospel or uh, you know just kind of that big uh, prosperity style mega church, we were very critical of. And I, I think again, that's something that that got us a lot of uh, followers who were you know it's just we're like Christians, but we're we make we make fun of Christians and we call out things within uh, Christianity that we feel that need uh, to be called out. So. It was kind of it's kind of a unique voice in that we can make fun of both uh, cultural things and political things, and then and then even call out our own sometimes. Here's uh, one also from this week: Nation shocked as Jerry Falwell Jr. doesn't turn out to be a man of upstanding character. <laughs> yeah, it's utterly shocking. I don't came out of nowhere really. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Uh, I, you know, you have these folks who work for you who are presumably coming up with content. A, like, how does an editorial meeting work at the Babylon B? Like, at 11 a.m. each day, y'all sit around and toss around ideas, or everyone brings you ideas, and you're like, no, that's too funny. We can't do it. Like, how? walk me through a day in the life of Kyle. Yeah, I mean, it's, you'd be surprised. It's very, like, it's a very uh, lean operation. Um, uh, for the first two years of the Babylon Bee, it was me and the founder, Adam Ford, basically just working on the site, um, like in our wow. basements type thing. And uh, we, we, we had a few writers that would pitch some stuff, but I wrote, you know, most of the content and, and Adam at, uh, edited most of the content. And that was pretty, <laughs> that was pretty much it. So uh, more recently, you know, we've gotten, uh, we've hired on a couple other people. We have I think three full-time uh, workers now. And that do photoshops and writing and, and work on our podcasts and stuff. Um, but and we have we probably have ten or so part time contributors that'll send in ideas. Uh, but it, it you know it's mostly done online. Like we'll do chat groups, uh, a chat room, and we'll kind of uh, you know just send over ideas and brainstorm and collaborate. The kind of comedy we write is very. Um, uh, it doesn't work great for collaboration on a headline usually. Um, it tends to be more like one person comes up with the idea, but then the collaboration uh, element comes in when we actually write the copy and someone will do the Photoshop or, you know, maybe we'll punch up the joke a little bit. Um, so that tends to be what, it, uh, what it is, is just someone thinks of something funny and sends it in. Um, uh, but yeah, they're really great guys and, and it's, it's a lot of fun to, to work with them. Had you done comedy writing before? No, I was actually in, uh, I was in construction. Uh, uh, four years ago when the site launched and I just started emailing in ideas. And I think the first article I wrote was um, Holy Spirit unable to move through congregation as fog machine breaks. And, uh, <laughs> That's <laughs> I sent, so good. <laughs> I sent that in on the first day of the site launched because I saw Adam, Adam had launched it and I just started emailing in ideas and it ran the next day. And that was kind of our first big hit. And uh, I, I was like, you know, all, all the kind of comedy I like is very dry and, you know, onion style stuff or mockumentary style stuff. And so it was like, right up like, oh my gosh, these people get me. It's the Christian, you know, it's like the Christian version of the onion. That's exactly what I've needed all my life. So <laughs> it was perfect. So, uh, you know, what, what Babylon B is legendary for the headlines. Yeah. Um, the, the headlines are, are what go viral on Twitter and 
What's interesting to me is you guys veer wildly between something that is just up front and center in the news and really insidery theological jokes. <laughs> um, and as, you know, a reformed Calvinist myself, I like some of the Calvinist jokes in particular. Um, and I have to ask you, are you favor, are, are you, are you the, or, uh, the originator of Calvinist health insurance company declares all conditions pre-existing? <laughs> no, that was actually, uh, that was actually one of the ones I didn't write back then. That was, um, that was a guy, uh, Dr. David Fisher, who's a, a medical doctor that, uh, that works with, um, that works with the elderly. <laughs> he does, he, he would be like going into some medical procedure and he'd, he'd text us on his phone. Hey, I got an idea for an article. <laughs> And, oh, is that uh, right? It was a bizarre combination, but he's been great. He's one of our oldest writers uh, in terms of uh, tenure. And uh, uh, yeah, no, I love the Calvinist jokes. You know, I'm a Calvinist myself. And and so that's why we, that's why, we, you know, if I'm a Calvinist, then I make fun of Calvinists, you know? So usually if we make fun of something a lot, it's because it's something that I'm, that I kind of care about. <laughs> Another one I like, unconfirmed Calvinist laughs at joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you no. really argue with the Calvinist online, you know, then you, you'll, you'll get that one. <laughs> so, oh boy, that is true. <laughs> uh, how much negative feedback do y'all get? Oh, we get tons. I mean, it comes from it. It comes from all directions too, because um, you know, progressive Christian Twitter hates us. Uh, uh, Trump Twitter hates us a, a lot of the time. You know, well, it's funny because Trump Twitter we'll make fun. We make fun of the left a lot, so you make fun of Biden, and we'll get all these followers. And then the next article, we make fun of Trump, you know, and then they're like, hey, wait a minute. Like, I didn't <laughs> sign up for this. And uh, yeah, anytime somebody has like their sacred cow, if it's Trump or, you know, the left or whatever it is, and you make fun of it, it's like, it's like, hey, that's off limits for satire. I love satire, but when you make fun of my thing, <laughs> that's when I, that's where I draw the line. Makes perfect sense. And yeah. speaking of that, so y'all uh, end up crossing paths with Snopes and Snopes is the, uh, you know, a pretty well-known fact-checking website. That's really all they do. As far as I know is do fact checks. And you had a headline that said, um, CNN purchases industrial washing machines to spin the news. And this got fact-checked. <laughs> And I was, I thought that was the joke. Then I, I thought that was really funny that y'all were making fun of fact checkers for fact checking absurd things, but it wasn't a joke. And in fact, uh, it, it ends up kind of spiraling out of control. Do, do you want to tell your version of how this all went down? Because I'm sure it's far more informed than my, like, what is going on version? Yeah, my version is the, is the true version. So <laughs> I'm happy to give you that. My, uh, yeah, so we, I wrote this joke. Yeah, I don't know, it was a Monday or maybe it was the Friday or something that CNN purchases industrial washing machine to spin the news. And, you know, it's, I mean, one it's of not those, even like that funny a joke. Like it's, it's funny, but like yeah, whatever. Thanks. No, yeah, that, <laughs> but that's exactly what I was going to say is that it's like, it's one of those jokes you, you kind of feel dumb for writing like, uh, okay, you know, we got, we got to get an article up. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to kind of phone it in and, right, and we'll throw a, this It's going. a quota joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's red meat. You know, it's like, all right, whatever. And, uh, and then like the next day I got this, we got this notification from Facebook saying uh, that our page was going to be deplatformed and demonetized because we were sharing fake news. So we click on it and it's like our fact checking partner Snopes has determined that you've been sharing fake news. And then, and it links to that article 
and and Snopes had written this full like lengthy fact check of it, you know, and it was it was serious, like dead and, serious, like not satire. Their fact check was not satire, even right. though I have to say it read like satire. Well, that's <laughs> and it made the joke it made the joke so much funnier too because <laughs> yeah, like you said, it was kind of a dumb joke, and then you had this thing like did did see it in really purchase a washing machine and. <laughs> The words they I, the words they use in that fact check are so funny because they're like uh, <laughs> it, it reads like they actually you know like call CNN and say hey did you guys purchase a washing machine it says the Babylon Bee website published an article reporting that CNN had made a significant investment in heavy machinery to assist their journalists spin the news it's like what what. Like they tried to make it sound like we were trying to report it like re- re- like it was real or something, and we're like, "What are you talking about?" It was bizarre. So yeah, we we've had a few run-ins with Snopes. I mean, we get why people, we get why they fact check things. I mean, you know, people are dumb on the internet and they they believe things that that are obviously satire. But that one was like, I, I have no idea why that was the one that <laughs> that triggered uh, triggered that fact check and and triggered us to to get some kind of a run-in with Facebook. And his so Snopes. Like, does Snopes have a history of fact-checking The Onion as well? Yeah, they fact-checked The Onion uh, many times. and uh, But the difference was, like, every time they fact-checked us, they would kind of throw in these little weasel words, like, uh, oh, you know, the Babylon Bee is muddying the waters, or, uh, you know, the, the Babylon Bee uh, fan- is fanning the flames of a current controversy. And then if you read their Onion uh, fact-checks, they were like, oh, this is obviously... Uh, satire and uh, you know some dumb people got fooled by it but uh but it's clearly satire so there was like a difference in tone with the way that they were fact checking us um which was concerning obviously because they were kind of looked at as this like unbiased uh uh, fact checker for for anything so it was it was kind of strange well and has the onion had any run-ins with facebook that you're aware of um not that i'm aware of you know that kind of came about because Facebook was using Snopes as their uh, as their fact checking partner at the time, and so if Snopes fact checked the Onion during that time, which they weren't, they were fact checking us a lot more than they were fact checking the Onion at that point. Um, but if they did, it's possible that it triggered something similar for the Onion and they resolved it or whatever. But uh, but yeah, nothing nothing that I'm aware of. Do you talk to the Onion guys? Are y'all like buddies online somewhere in some happy satire little chat room? <laughs> I wish I, I someone reached out once uh, that was um, not from the Onion, but someone who knew the Onion writers and uh, and was trying to get us all together for uh, uh, you know we could either do some kind of event or, or yeah uh, or you know that would be a lot of fun. We could do a we could do a debate or something that would be hilarious. But. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I never heard back. So I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe they weren't down for it. David, I remember back in college, The Onion was actually a print newspaper that uh, like you could pick up in Evanston. It was like sort of a like Midwestern Big Ten thing. It was awesome. Oh, I used to have copies of the print newspaper of The Onion back it was, in the day. It felt really underground back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. And then it was, you know, responsible for some of the first kind of viral headlines and well, especially when yeah. politicians thought they were real yeah <laughs> exactly exactly so it seems to me that you've got sort of two issues going on here one is you've got this the snopes issue which is that you know it i mean of all of the articles to fact check this the cnn washing machine one still just boggles the mind <laughs> i love it you so have much 
it's, it's unbelievable. I, I literally, it, I, I can't, it doesn't compute in my mind. But the other thing that you have is you do have actually lots of people will believe the stories that you write. Um, I mean, not majorities, but there are people who, who share your stories as truth. And so I guess one of the questions I have is how do you kind of react to that? Like, what do you, do you think, okay, well, if somebody, if someone shared a story that we wrote as truth, that was our fail or their fail? Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I've always wondered about that. Yeah, I think I think there's a little bit of both. Like maybe there's a little bit of responsibility on the writer's side. Like there are fake news sites, you know, mm-hmm. that just write, you know, Hillary Clinton was caught worshiping Satan or something, you know. And there's no mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no humor to it or, or satirical point. It's just like uh, clearly trying to deceive to get the clicks. You know, we saw that a lot. I think. Like in the 2016 election, some of those sites came up. Um, so a lot of it has to do with motive. Like we're obviously not trying to do that. Um, mm-hmm. There's also another element where uh, like the articles that do kind of get closer to that line. I mean, they're right. They're right on our website where like there's a bunch of clearly satirical articles all around it. You know, so it's supposed to look like, OK, yeah, that one's a little closer to the truth. Maybe someone can mistake that for being real. But like, if you're paying attention at all to the page that you're reading from, or the, uh, you know, or the or the the uh, Facebook or Twitter account, our Facebook or Twitter account, it's like you scroll through a couple articles, you go, oh, this whole thing is satirical. Yeah, so I think if it was always that very dry, cutting really close to reality headline, you might, you might have, uh, you know, th- there might be some culpability on the po- uh, on the part of the writer, like to uh, to make it more clear. Um, but at the same time, it's like the criticism that'll come like, Oh, you guys are just trying to, you know, deceive grandma on Facebook or whatever. It's like, there is, there is an element where it's not that our articles are too close to reality. It's that reality is too close to satire. You know, it's, it's what makes it so hard to write because you write something that you think is so goofy and over the top. And then people believe it because reality is so crazy or the next week, you know, it'll, the, the prophecy will come true or whatever. You know, <laughs> it's like they're reading our site to get ideas. So I think I think sometimes it's more of an indictment on on the people you're making fun of that someone would believe that, you know, because they are being so ridiculous or whatever. So this week, y'all picked up a lot of new Twitter followers. Yeah. Because <laughs> you were kicked off Twitter briefly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was bizarre. And uh, what was the reason? I, I I tracked that from afar, so I didn't. I just knew that it happened, but I didn't know what had happened. It was like, in a lot of ways, at least for now, it was like the best thing that could happen to us because it was very temporary, and then uh, and then it came back. You know, we gained I don't know how many subscribers we or uh, followers we gained one hundred thirty thousand, hundred forty thousand new wow. followers because of it. Good night. But <laughs> but it was you know we got an email that are that we were being banned for or suspended for um spam and platform manipulation and so it was kind of like okay is this a mistake and we we tried to kind of go through the process and it was very opaque like what it was we were actually doing um so we were like worried did we you know did we do something wrong are we using the platform wrong and um and they they banned a bunch of other like uh satirical and parody accounts that are making fun of the left uh at the same time so it felt like it felt like there was some kind of label or internal like list that they had going like these are these 
accounts to keep an eye on. And then, you know, oops, someone hit the ban button on accident or something, you know? And so it was a little, it was a little like, you know, no permanent damage. We are a little worried about it, you know, just because if we are on some kind, if we are listed in some kind of group of accounts that they're concerned about, you know, maybe next time we don't get get uh, reinstated so quickly. Uh, Titania McGrath, the popular satirical account, was suspended for a couple of weeks. You know, right. so it's 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 something that that we're always kind of keeping an eye on. But luckily, you know, it resonates with a lot of people, and they they support us. You know, they they follow us, they subscribe because uh, because it's something that a lot of people are concerned about. So this is a legal podcast. Do y'all look into your legal recourses on things like this? Yeah, we have we have uh, we have really good lawyers. Um, when when uh, like I said, it was kind of a basement operation for a couple of years, and we got really lucky because if we had ever gotten uh, sued or or banned or in any kind of legal trouble, we wouldn't have had any way to to really respond. You know, we didn't have the finances; we were just goofing around. We only had Google Ads was our only source of revenue. And uh, but uh, Seth Dillon's our CEO now. He bought the site from Adam Ford two years ago. And he's got a really good infrastructure, good legal support. Um, so, yeah, he, he's very proactive with that kind of stuff. You know, whenever we we feel like our brand's being threatened by this or that, he'll draft letters, and and he's ready for that kind of thing. We we, we launched a we launched a subscription service so people can support us financially, and that was the, one of the main things that he did to kind of say, okay, if this ever happens, you know, and we use all our legal recourse and we have no way to get back on this platform or that platform will, you know, people support us directly. So that's been really nice to kind of have that uh, stability and that fallback. So in other words, uh, similar to the, the new, the new declaration of independence now uh, from cancel culture is getting a Substack, um, <laughs> which the dispatch where the, we're the, one of the pioneers. Um, so you're, you're trying to sort of, figure out a fallback out uh, a way out of the threat of cancel culture. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to kind of just have that, you know, that, like I said, it was all we, we had, it was kind of concerning because we were doing fine and it, the Babylon B was a, was a kind of an overnight success. And a lot of people were following us, getting a lot of new followers, but we're looking at it and it's like, you know, I don't know, 80%, 90% of the traffic was coming from Facebook, you know, who had sent us that, uh, that notification that we needed that we were going to be deplatformed and demonetized. We kind of thought like, if that ever happened, what would we do? <laughs> yeah, because there's you'd have no way to get your message to anybody. So we've done a few strategies, like we've done. Uh, we 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 built a big newsletter list to kind of cut out some of the middleman, and uh, you know, I, I think it's important for people to kind of diversify how they can reach their uh, their fel- uh, followers. Do you ever pull your punches? Like, is a joke that comes to you from one of your writers, and you're like, you know what? Right now, given what's going on in the country, um, we're not going to do that this week. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's most of my job. Is like, uh, I think comedy is at its best. You know, when the writers have free reign to write whatever they want, pitch whatever they want. There's no like judgment, you know, behind the scenes. Uh, but then my job as as the editor in chief is to go, okay, that's not. Like maybe that's a funny joke, but that's not right for us. Or maybe that's a funny joke, but given what's going on, we got to be real careful. And you know, sometimes maybe we step over the line, but it's something that that we're constantly thinking about. Like we want the Babylon Bee to remain that unique voice that's speaking truth to a post-truth culture. That uh, you know, and I, I think if you're just going for the jugular every time, you know, or you have no discernment whatsoever with what you post, 
you're going to lose some of that effectiveness. Let's pause for a moment to talk about our next sponsor, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. Netflix has different shows and movies available depending on where you are. With ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries around the globe. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. ExpressVPN is available on every device, phones, laptops, tablets, even your TV. ExpressVPN works with many streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and many more. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. It's so simple to use. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location, hit connect, and then refresh the page and the show or movie you want to watch will magically appear. If you use my link right now at expressvpn.com opinions, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com opinions. So I, I'm, I'm curious about, do you, do you try to do sort of an intentional mix of like mainstream political humor versus the insidery Christian humor? Or is it, is it just kind of a free flowing as the new cycle dictates, as the ideas come um, because you do have, as I was saying, it is this really unique, uh, combination. There's not many people who sort of speak to that insidery Christian audience and also speak more broadly to just sort of, you know, what's going on in the culture at large. Yeah. Yeah. It's very intentional. We want to, we want to follow the news cycle some, uh, but I think, you know, and sometimes like, you know, there, there's a, the, during the convention week, it's going to be heavier on current events. It's going to be heavier on politics because that's what's hot right now or whatever. But I think if you follow it too much, if you follow it, you know, uh, slavishly, like every day you're, you're covering whatever the hot controversy is, you're going to lose some of the, you're going to lose some of the timelessness. You know, you think about some of the really popular comedy writing or uh, comedy novels or comedy shows, comedy films, you know, they're timeless for a reason. It's because they're not, maybe they do speak to some current politics, but they, they're able to broaden it beyond just that. And so, I, yeah, I, I, I'm always going to do, as long as I'm running the Babylon Bee, we're always going to do dumb Christian jokes because <laughs> they're funny to me. And I think that really, you know, it, it gives the site good character that, yeah, we can make fun of current events, but at the same time, you know, we do some loving satire of the church or, or you know, we, we make fun of uh, little Christian living things, uh, uh, really, really uh, inside baseball theological jokes, you know, that kind of stuff. I love it. And I think it does give us a unique character uh, compared with just being kind of a generic uh, politics site. There's also old man by pond starting to suspect ducks only like him for his food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not fitting in the political or religious category. And like for me, like I just like die giggling. Like that's, that's somehow like my exact sense of humor. <laughs> so Kyle, yeah. what are what are your all what are your favorite mic drop headlines that you've that you've drafted? Like well, that you look back to this day and you say, yeah, th- this is this is me at my peak. I don't know. I mean, do you want like mic drop like uh yeah, like we totally savage somebody or just like my no, absolute no, no, favorites? Like, you yeah, know, like, like your favorites. Like you, you know, if I'm gonna ask Steph Curry, when did you feel <laughs> most in the zone? <laughs> And he's going to say, you know, like, oh, against, you know, uh, against the Mavericks in, you know, April 2nd, 2017. And, you know, so w- when were you most in the zone? 
All right, well, let me give you a few. Uh, so here, here, how about this? For general, just dumb humor, Le Lego introduces new sharper bricks that instantly kill you when you step on them. <laughs> that was terrifying. one of those dumb everyday life jokes. But that, perfect for a dad. I'm guessing you yeah. have a, a son. Oh, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Christian joke, Joel Osteen sails luxury yacht through flooded Houston to pass out copies of your best life now. I, I remember that. I was in Houston for that. Yeah. And you saw the yacht, Sarah. So you can <laughs> I did, I did. That I saw true. the yacht. And then uh, one more. How about like a little political current event? Uh, this is, uh, this one got, I don't know if this got snow, but inspiring celebrities spell out we're all in this together with their yachts <laughs> i liked the one the other what was it powerful I, I don't have it right in front of me but i'm remembering powerful uh riders spell out love yeah, and yeah. burning home businesses that was the sequel that was the sequel to my uh, <laughs> yeah. yachts joke I can, i'm allowed to steal my own joke yeah oh, that, that was a good one too <laughs> uh so we always try to end with something uh, off topic, lighter, etc. Uh, what, but you're a comedy writer. So I want, like, I have curiosity, like you have at least one son. Cause we've seen him walking around in the background. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's like the funny book or something that you read to your son that you're like, this is a good sense of humor book for uh, a kid, your kid's age. Oh man. Um, we read, well, it's not exactly funny, but we read, uh, we just finished the Chronicles of Narnia together. And that not was ha -ha uh, funny. Not, not ha ha funny, but there, <laughs> but uh, C.S. Lewis has so many funny little observations about, I mean, what's the one is in Don Treader has the best, uh, one of the best opening lines in all of uh, literature. It's like, uh, oh, that's, you know, I'm, I'm frantically Googling. Uh, real, real life fact checking. It's the, uh, <laughs> man now, now i'm not gonna get it. oh yeah the there was a boy named eustace scrub and he almost deserved it <laughs> i love i remember I, I love that i love that kind of dry writing that's not like haha -ha, like punchline funny but it's like these very satirical kind of observations throughout and uh yeah, well, here's so an we, important question. Did you which book did you start with in Chronicles of Narnia? Because I have started reading it to my two and a half month old. By the way, I'll tell you, he's not a big fan right now. I don't know why. <laughs> what? Uh, I know it's crazy, uh, but there was a big controversy in my friend group of which book I started with. Did you start with the wrong one? Did you start with Magician's Nephew? I did. I started with the wrong one. Yeah, that's the wrong one. <laughs> no, yeah, that's not the correct order. You're supposed to start with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You have to discover Narnia through Lucy's eyes. Not not uh, through the creation account. Absolutely. See? Good to know. Good to know, David. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm just going to do, I'm totally not going to put the needle down on my whole album side about how the best C.S. Lewis fantasy books are the Space Trilogy and not the Chronicles of Narnia. You're, you're looking at me, Sarah, as if you've never heard of Out of the Silent Planet, uh, Paralandra, or this hit that hideous strength, or this I, hideous strength. I thought you were just going to talk about how C.S. Lewis's best writing for children was in one of his, you know, real books. Uh, and I was going to be like, yeah, you're probably right. That'll be really interesting when I read one of those to my kiddo. But nope, nope, you went pure David on that one. <laughs> pure. Well, and truth be told, the space trilogy isn't really for kids. But 
I'm I sure you tell yourself that. <laughs> I think it's peak C.S. Lewis fantasy uh, fiction writing. Like, I, I think that's where, I, if I had to list my top five books, one of the top five is Paralandred, the, the second one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Kyle, you completely agree with me, I'm sure. Yeah, the last book was confusing. I, I didn't get it, but I guess it was responding to some controversy at his time. And some people say it's really applicable today. That hideous strength. I need to go back uh, and reread it. It's, it's actually, C.S. Lewis's funniest is uh, the screw tape letters. That is excellent. Oh, excellent. Oh, so good. Yeah. So wait, I know I said this is the last question before, but now I do people at your church like did they side eye you when you walk in if you just made like a really sharp church joke? Oh, yeah. My pastor showed up on Easter Sunday last year in a pink, a pastel pink uh, uh, polo shirt. And so I wrote an article the next day that was like, you know, I don't know, something about, you know, wife clearly dressed family for Easter and, you know, pink pastels (laughs) or whatever. And I get a text from like an hour later, like, hey, wait a minute. This is me, you know. So, yeah, I definitely know. All right. Well, thank you, Kyle, so much for joining us. This has been a treat. If any of you listening have not checked out the Babylon Bee, it really is like at the end of my day, sort of the thing that, uh, you know, is a nice little bow on my day to just go off to dreamland with a happy, funny thoughts in this dark, dark alternate timeline that we're in. (laughs) Where we long for the asteroid. I believe I saw a poll that you posted where there was about 96% approval rating for the asteroid that's... Spod 2020. Right. <laughs> well, thank you, Kyle, very much. We, so, we deeply appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.